Thank you for tuning in to Time Out with Broderick. This is a podcast dedicated to bridging the gap between BIPOC culture, creative art forms, and educational theater. My name is Broderick, and I am so happy that you're joining today's conversation. Now, I must admit, this has been a little bit of a trip for this podcast, five months to be exact. I've been sitting on this little egg for five months, uh, a conversation that I had with executive director of TYA USA, that's Theater for Young Audiences, um, the USA chapter, Jonathan Schmidt Chapman, and this conversation is rich, it's uh, very honest, and it's full of intentional questions. I will give just a, a little bit of a warning that we do discuss some things about race, and we discuss some things about um, war, and some traumatic things that have happened to us in the past, or things that have happened to our families, and so I just want to mention that before jumping in, but such, such a beautiful, beautiful conversation. I can't wait for everyone to hear this one, and I can't wait for to hear your feedback and your thoughts on what you think about this episode, but without further ado, we're going to jump right in. I'm going to have uh, Jonathan, will you just introduce yourself uh, before we get started with the audience today? My name is Jonathan Schmidt-Chapman. I use he, him pronouns. I am the executive director of Theater for Young Audiences USA, which is the national organization that represents the field of Theater for Young Audiences. And it would be great if you wanted to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, Theater for Young Audiences USA. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm seriously so excited <laughs> about <laughs> this interview. I've been excited about this interview for quite some time now. Um, I'm just gonna jump right in, uh, start yeah. asking you some questions. I first just wanna know, um, when did you realize that you wanted to be a part of theater for young audiences? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, my parents took me to a ton of TYA performances. Uh, I remember, I have a vivid memory of this crazy uh, European performance troupe called Momenschance, which is, it's actually still around. It's a visual theater troupe um, that creates like wordless performances and, uh, the images, I can still remember, remember some of the images from that show. Uh, and as a kid, I, I went to see performances a lot with my parents. I got very interested in theater, but didn't really consider theater for young audiences as a professional route. I, I kind of fell into it by way of educational theater. Uh, after college, I worked as a teaching artist and really fell in love with that intersection of education and art and social justice. Um, and got a job. One of my first jobs out of school was at the New Victory Theater in New York, which is a theater that presents uh, performances from around the world. Um, they Every season, they present theater and dance, music, circus, puppetry from, from all across the globe. So I, I, I often joke that I got like uh, an MFA in theater for young audiences just by working there for eight years and watching so many different performances and watching kids' reactions to them. And I think in sitting in that theater, I, it, the light bulb, you know, went on uh, for me that theater for young audiences specifically could be an art form and an area that I, I was really passionate about uh, and could pursue as a career. Okay, and so you're the executive director um, is your official title for yes. theater uh, for TYUSA, Theater for Young Audiences USA. I would like to know, like, I guess, what does a day-to-day kind of situation for you look like? Also, like, what are some things that you do for your job? And what is the most important thing that you think is within that bunch of things that you do for your job? Because I, in my mind, I'm like, executive director, that means like a very wide, broad range of things yeah. that you're doing. I was going to say, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, 
So I guess I, I should preface it by saying I'm used to working, you know, the, my previous jobs were at the New Victory and then at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. I'm used to working at big organizations with large teams and being part of a large team. And the shift four years ago to working for Theater for Young Audiences was really uh, a big shift for me because I, when I joined the TYA USA staff, I was the only staff member. So um, the organization has been around since 1965. It has a long history and it's part of an international network of centers like this for theater for young audiences around the world. Uh, but TYA USA for, for most of its life has been run by a, a volunteer board of professionals from the industry who volunteer to, you know, to support the work of the, of the organization. So when I took this, this job four years ago, I was the third executive director of, the, of TYA USA. And I feel like a lot of my role has been figuring out how to shape the company and grow it, how to, how to have it be a louder voice for the field. And rather than solely representing the community, pushing the community, you know, so how can we, how can we both kind of celebrate what's, what's going on, but, but be the voice that is pushing forward, you know, with the vision for where TYA as a field and an art form can be going. And so a lot of the work in the last couple of years, I feel has been balanced or it has been split between big picture thinking and nonstop uh, administrative growth uh, to try to, you know, kind of catch up with that um, vision of being able to support and infrastructure all the big goals that we have. So now we're a team of six. And uh, I would say in the last, you know, in terms of the day to day in the last year, my job has radically changed. You know, ever since COVID hit, um, obviously the entire theater field has changed. And as a, as a service organization, it's our job to respond to what the field needs, represent, you know, our constituency, both within the field and externally. And all of that has been thrown up in the air because of COVID in so many ways. Yeah. So I feel like my day to day has really become so immediate. Like I'm trying to respond to exactly what's happening and figure out in a much more urgent way, how we support individual artists and companies through this crazy time. And I, I agree. I think it's super important. And I do think that TYA is reflecting um, community needs. So yeah, I know yeah, it's hard you, to, oh no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say when, you know, when you think about the role we play in child development, I think that's where it, it gets really exciting. You know, that the kind of art we make is helping shape young people, you know, into who they're, they are today and who they're going to be tomorrow, that it, it has a profound impact in a different way than, you know, um, art being made for adults. Not to say that that isn't impactful, but um, it's, it's different. And I, yeah. I, of, I often think that I mean, this is one of the, you know, the areas that I try to push in my platform Kids are the most curious, open-minded, um, you know, enthusiastic audience you can create for. We should be creating the most experimental, interesting, boundary-breaking work for them because they have no preconceived notion of what theater can be or should be. So we should not train them into think, you know, into one idea of theater. Um, rather than continuing, you know, it, it should be the art form in which artists are the most um, yeah. dynamic and innovative. I know that it's hard to measure milestones, especially during, um, <laughs> during a pandemic. We're, we're in a pandemic <laughs> and we're going to measure milestones. But I want to know, do you think there are any milestones that um, 
TYUSA has hit before COVID, during COVID, um, or milestones that you're working towards, like after we're kind of out of this pandemic phase or out of the um, quarantining self-isolation phase that you are really hoping that TYUSA can meet um, in the future? Yeah, so pre-COVID, I think we were, we were doing a really good job at that point of uniting the field, you know, trying to bring people together, organizations and artists who may make very different work, but trying to create, you know, a, a connect, an interconnected uh, community and, a, you know, a container to advocate and create and inspire each other together. One of the ways we did that, um, I felt really strongly that we needed research, you know, that you can't really understand where you're going until you know where you are. And there, I, when I started my job, I just kept getting asked questions about, you know, percentages and numbers across the field in terms of the art we were making or the demographics of staffs or the size of budgets or, and that kind of data didn't exist specifically for the TYA field. So one of the things we did was commission a state of the field research study in 2019, which I'm really glad we got before the pandemic because it sort of gave us a bench, you know, a benchmark of where we were as a field. And it laid the groundwork for a lot of things that we knew to be true, but having the numbers behind them yeah. showed, yeah, this is exactly where we need to focus. This is the kind of change we need to see. Um, the other big milestone was an event that we had in May of, or June of 2019, where we hosted an event in collaboration with Theater Communications Group, TCG, and the National Endowment for the Arts. And it was a big advocacy event and moment that was that the NEA was really pushing forward to shine a light on the TYA field and say, the rest of the industry and funders and um, policymakers need to look at this industry and see the impact it's having, which was a big deal. And uh, and now <laughs> I feel like the world is upside down. And uh, you know, one of the big milestones of this year, I think we, we were already one of the major tent poles of TYUSA for the last several years has been thinking about how to make the, the entire field more equitable, equitable, diverse and inclusive, um, thinking about anti-racism. It was a, a huge focus for us at the May 2019 conference in Atlanta, the Alliance. Uh, and it was amazing. At that point, we had Stephanie Ibarra and Jacob Padron speak to our, our field. I think it was the first time the word anti-racism was used, <laughs> you know, at a, in a keynote at a TYA conference. And it's amazing to look back at that moment now. It's not that long ago. And think about, you know, it, it, at least I, I hope it feels like a lot has changed. You know, there's a lot more awareness. Um, obviously, last year was a, um, a sea change moment. And I think TYA USA has really been trying to um, utilize that momentum and push for more change. The Listen, Learn, Lead Anti-Racism and TYA series we led in the fall that I had the honor of collaborating with Shavana Calder, who's the founder of Arts and Color, who's now joined our team as uh, one of the co-consulting directors of anti-racism initiatives. Uh, she is brilliant. And together we were able to craft an 11 session um, webinar series with 30 different speakers had a thousand over a thousand people across the country participating in. And, you know, I think it, it, it pushed people to think more than just like, let's learn, let's read a book, let's think about this. And how do we actually take tangible action to make change in the industry? Um, I mean, the other funny thing, like it's talk about milestones. We commissioned inspired by Stephanie Ibarra and Jacob Padron a year, year and a half ago or more at that May 2019 conference, 
we commissioned a study in collaboration with the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, again, to say we need research to back up what we think is true. We know the field is not diverse enough. We know that we are not hiring enough BIPOC playwrights, uh, actors, uh, directors, but what what is really going on? Like, what are the numbers telling us? And this study compared 2008-9 to 2018-19 across, I wanna say something like 60 theaters, 60 of the largest TYA theaters around the country. And, you know, the numbers are challenging. There's a little bit of progress over that 10-year divide, but not, not enough. Yeah. And that report was published in June of 2020. <laughs> so it was, you know, a really intense time to be putting those numbers out in the world. But, yeah. you know, we kind of felt like, no, we this is exactly the moment to put this out in the world, to say, this is who we are. This is where the industry is. We own this and we have to make, we have to change it. Yeah. We have to ensure that the kids we serve and the communities we serve are represented on the, on our stages and behind the scenes and change the organizational cultures of these theaters that have been around a long time to reflect the diversity of their communities and our, our you know, the young people in this country. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I think that for me right now is the most energizing part of my job and milestone for TYUSA that we, that we, you know, can actively push the field toward that change and there's there's no going back from it yeah i, I feel that 100 and it's you're standing in your truth right that's essentially what it is it's like this is the truth of who we are no curtains no blinds nothing hiding that like this is just who we are and i think in the world of anti-racism work and where we especially the heat of uh, black lives matter movements over the summer where we were at I feel that that's it. being transparent and being um, honest and open is was essentially what people needed. I don't need the uh, I yeah. don't need the side items on my plate anymore. Like I need the meat and the potatoes. Like I need the hard stuff. And so, yeah, I I think that's extremely important, Jonathan. I think and I think that TY is headed in the right direction in that and saying that this is a before we start any of the work before we. Um, really jump into what this looks like as work for our organization moving forward. We're going to be transparent about where we are and who we are and how we serve people. And so doing that and being honest, that helps other companies, whether you're a big uh, TYA company or not, or whether you're just a small, you know, small children's theater in a rural area, I think it still helps for all those companies underneath that TYA umbrella to be like, okay, we also can be transparent and honest and open to say like, this is where we are. These are the anti-racism practices that we already have in place, or maybe we don't have it in place and we need help to start that work. Yeah. So I just, I think that is extremely important. And I think it speaks volumes to the BIPOC um, communities that you, that are serving within those companies. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, yeah, that just makes me feel good. That makes me feel really good. I just think back to you when I met you at SCT, you know, I came to visit the theater. I think it was November of 2019. And you, and you asked that question of me when I was presenting to the staff, you know, around where I feel like the field is moving in terms of anti-racism and EDI work and what needs to happen. It is pretty amazing to think how different things felt then than they do now. I mean, obviously there's so much work to do and we're only kind of, you know, at the beginning of a lot of, a lot of companies and artists waking up way too late to these issues, but at least there's, there's far more awareness, I think, and, and discussion and action happening now than there was when 
we had that conversation back in November of 2019. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just um, released the anti-racism in TYA USA document um, that speaks to the work that we want to do uh, in the future, some of the work that we're doing now, um, and really just putting out an initiative for people to get on board. Like, here it is. This is what we're working on. Um, and this is what I wouldn't even say necessarily what we're working towards, what we're hoping to just see, like, more practices about in the future. Let's commit to this and get on board and start taking some action steps um, to do this. Because I think as a as a Black man myself, I hear a lot of people and companies sometimes speak about being anti-racism, like, or anti-racist. And it's like, that's great. You've given us you've given me a lot of things to think about. You've given me a lot of information about your company, but where, in my mind, I'm like, where does the action happen now? So like, what are you gonna do to implement these practices? What are you doing to make sure the BIPOC people that are already working for you feel safe? Yeah, and you know, going back to what you had said, what you asked me earlier about the role of, my role as executive director, like I feel like one of the challenges is I'm often like put in the role of expert because, you know, because of my position, and I'm still learning. Like I have a lot of learning to do and I'm, I'm, you know, actively seeking my own professional development. And I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is, you know, to admit when you don't have all the answers and to get out of the way and pr- like to use, especially as a white leader in the arts field, to use my platform to give others a voice. Like yeah. one of the, the most exciting parts of the last year for me has been collaborating with the BIPOC and TYA advisory board. Um, you know, this grassroots grassroots group of leaders that have come up through a lot of the um, organizing in the TYA field over the last year, and saying, you know, in my position at TYUSA, I can give their work support. I can give them a platform, and I can step aside and listen to them, and learn from them, and ha- figure out how the organization can grow from their vision. Uh, and that's been it's totally changed me. It's totally changed the organization. Yeah. I think it's, you know, changed all of our work to, to see the fruits of their labor in that document and to, um, to recognize how much, you know, uh, leadership there is in the field right now that isn't necessarily being heard and needs to be amplified. Yeah. Do you think that being a parent has affected the way that you feel about this work? And vice versa, do you think that the work itself has affected the way that you parent? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and one of the, gosh, one of the really challenging things right now is that so much of what I'm learning and thinking about as a parent is, is wanting to think about being very intentional about the community in which I'm raising my child and and the, you know, the, the wider village that he has access to. And COVID has just made that impossible. Yeah. You know, it's like, obviously there are things that we can do virtually, but it's, it's been very hard to like have this moment where I have so many ideas for the ways I want to sort of shift the way we're, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm learning and how I want to parent and just feeling really isolated right now. And our world has kind of shrunk. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, I, and, and, and it's, you know, it's also, it's interesting to look at it through the lens of being a, a gay dad, having a child in a non-traditional, you know, family structure home. And um, it, it just, you know, all the conversations we've been having around representation and whose stories get told and how do kids process their identity through story, I think about a lot. You know, already yeah. watching He's Almost Four 
and how so many things are ingrained in our culture in the way that you have to, as a parent, you have to intentionally unwind them. Things that you don't even introduce to them that are introduced them from other media or from, you know, school or from books that you don't necessarily read to them, but are read to them, you know, like it's, it's amazing how culture seeps in at a very young age. And your job as a parent is constantly to kind of put it in a framework that you, you know, where that you want your child to see the world through. Yeah. It's, (laughs) I think about that all the time. He's, he's already very uh, theatrical, Uh, you know, like kids that, that age, are already are really into imaginative play, but um, <laughs> we've taught him now. So he knows, you know, to start a, a scene, he says, curtain, you know, <laughs> he'll, set, he'll set up the scene. He directs the imaginative play with us um, before COVID hit. I mean, he had seen like, I don't know, something like 20 different shows for very young kids by the time yeah. he was three. Oh, wow. Uh, but, you know, it, it's your previous question. I think even when you're, you know, even when you're an intentional parent, figuring out how to introduce hard conversations is still a challenge. And I think there was a debate in a webinar we had this past year between two people who were on, who were raising really interesting points around how to introduce kids, very young children to the concept of race mm-hmm. and racism. And one one person in the debate had sort of said, you, ha- you have to be honest about oppression and racism very young because if you don't introduce it you know they're they're getting that information elsewhere and they're going to create bias and the other person was kind of like why would you lead with that lead with you know the the sort of lesson that um look how look at our skin color there it's you know we're all different and it's beautiful and you know it's it's interesting like i i don't know where i land in that debate and i'm still really struggling with that idea you know as a parent of a of a white child what is what is the age appropriate way to start these conversations when it's not apparent to him? You know, obviously, I think all kids are aware of race at that age. But what is the best way to introduce yeah. when and how to bring up certain topics and you know how to start introducing things so that there's an awareness there, but in an age appropriate way? I, it's really it's a it's fascinating. No, like it, and as an educator, as a parent, I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> with like. What is the, you know, the right way to start these conversations and, um, and teach them in a way that I think will make sense to him and, and get through? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%, Jonathan. I think it's extremely fascinating. And I mean, I grew up in the South. I grew up a, a Black kid um, in West Alabama. And, um, and I played, I mean, I played, I did the sports. I played baseball. I was involved in theater. And I can honestly say that as a very young kid, I don't remember, I think I was just, I mean, I was a kid, I was just unaware sometimes of like um, race factors in certain situations. I'm sure that situations probably came up with my parents or whatever, um, and I was there, but I just didn't equate it to race um, as a kid. But I do remember getting a little bit older, like middle school age and being, then being like, okay, oh, I'm very aware that I am different or that people see me different because I look different than some of the people around me or um, not even like look different because there was the huge population of black people where I was at, but just that like people think that we're different or assume that we're different because of how we look. And one of those happened when my neighbor across the street, uh, my dad 
uh, my dad and another neighbor would help cut his grass sometimes. And his wife, uh, he's an elderly white man and his wife had passed from cancer and um, he had a hard time getting around as well, but he always referred to us as colored. And I would be like, the like little middle school me was like turning my head like what like I'm looking at my dad like you're gonna let this man call us colored like what is wrong with you but my dad taught me a beer just taught me a life lesson in that moment to say that like people are raised differently than we are and he's an elderly white man where the time that he grew up in it was acceptable to call um black people color or that's what black people referred to like they refer to themselves as color. And he, in his mind, is thinking that he's being respectful. Now, I do think there's a, sec- a section of that where you can, let's have a call-in moment. Um, right. And like, let's talk, <laughs> like, let's let's actually talk about this. Or like, that's actually not appropriate. You probably shouldn't say that to anybody else. But I understand that my dad knew that this man was an elderly white man, really shut in. Like, it's that he doesn't have any outside world. You know, like, he's not interacting with other people other than his neighbors, really. Most of his groceries and stuff are being dropped off at his house. So, like, he just really is not interacting with people. And who am I to step in and correct or shatter this man when he really feels like he's being very nice and respectful of us? And because he was, he was always super sweet, always very nice to us. But that the world that he grew up in, Black people were just seen as colored. And that's how black people also referred to themselves. And so it was interesting that moment. And then the moment playing baseball as a kid and knowing that I was being basically talked down to because I was the black kid on the team. Um, I remember being told once that I just needed to sit down and keep the score. Wow. And like, I stormed out of the dugout, (laughs) like stormed out. Um, And my dad was like, no, you're going to go back in there. And I was like, why, like, why do I have to go back in and sit down when, like, it's not fair. And my dad was like, because if you don't, you're giving them the power. You're giving them the right to say, well, he quit. We didn't do, like, he decided to quit. He decided to walk out. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And I refuse to give him that. I refuse to give you, um, give you my power or to say that I gave up because I'm not that person. Um, yeah. But those moments helped me to make, help make me, I think the fighter that I am in terms of um, knowing really what I want and what I will and will not take from people. Um, totally. But yeah, I do, I, I can't imagine how my dad felt in those moments as a parent having to parent, knowing that he, I'm sure he's had his own real life experiences as a black man with yeah. that, but then knowing that I am now having, um, I knew the time would come, but I'm having to teach my son these things as well. Yeah. Those were just, it was hard, but we, we got through, we pushed through. My dad impacted my story in that way. And knowing that um, I know you're going to be a huge impact uh, in your son's journey and his story, but who in your life do you think has impacted you the most? And if you were given an opportunity to honor that person or to even say like, hey, I, I just want to say thank you, what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, there are so many people that I feel like I could name, but right now I'm thinking a lot about my my late grandmother and her sisters. Both of her sisters are still um, with us and in Israel. And all three of them are Holocaust survivors. So wow. um, they all their story is remarkable. And like, you know, speaking of this previous conversation, obviously it's different, but it's like, you know, at what point is it 
the right moment to introduce trauma of the past to your kids, you know, like tell the yeah. story. I feel like I was introduced to these stories as a very young kid. Um, my, my relatives wrote a book about their experience for the family just to have. Mm-hmm. And recently I heard my, you know, through the power of zoom <laughs> in, uh, in this weird moment when we can't gather my great aunt who speaks a lot about her experience did a, a zoom, um, talk with, uh, this, uh, German group and, um, on the panel, it's like the, the first lady of Germany and a German ambassador listening to her give her testimony. And it was, it was so powerful. And I was hearing the story that I've known my whole life, like with fresh ears, you know, um, how she, her parents, her dad was arrested on the, on the night of Kristallnacht in Germany, you know, when things were really changing, um, but it was hard to know what was happening, what was going to happen next. And her mother made the choice to send her two kids I think they were two and five years old. She arranged for them to stay with like distant cousins uh, in another country in Belgium and put them on a train with a stranger who was transporting them and had no idea if she'd ever see her kids again, Um, but made that choice because she wanted to get them out of Germany. And then to reunite with their kids, this is my great, great grandparents. Um, They escaped Germany in the back of like a false back of a truck um, with another couple of people and were, you know, got over the border and then basically fled all through Europe, um, and got visas finally to seek passage, passage through Cuba because the U S wasn't accepting refugees. Um, and so they were in Cuba for four years and then made their way to the U S but just, I mean, it's just, it's so hard to fathom. And I guess when I heard it, you know, as a kid, it just felt kind of mythic to me, you know? Uh, but hearing yeah. it now, like recognizing that her parents were my age making this decision, like it's yeah. it's so hard to comprehend the kind of experiences that, you know, our our generations past went through and um, and the kind of choices they had to make. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like so much of their that identity, that story has shaped my identity and. Yeah. Um, and, and my no- parents identity. Yeah. I'm sitting here going like, you're only two generations disconnected from that. You know what I mean? Like, that's right. Wow. That's like huge. That's really huge. Yeah. And they're of the, you know, they're of the last generation that, that will have firsthand experience with that story. And it's so um, sad that so many people don't know that history anymore that we're, you know, losing the memories of, of that um, incredibly scary time. Um, and, and, you know, obviously with everything that's happened in this country in the last several years, it's just like, uh, yeah. it's, yeah, I, I grew, I feel like, I, you know, I will never forget my mom when, when I was little made a point of always, like she was very focused on having our passports be updated, but yeah. they could never expire. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's this idea that like, we all, we might have to flee and we have to be ready for that. And like, cause my, you know, my relatives felt like they were Germans, like they were German citizens until, you know, living in a democracy until like all of a sudden they weren't. And they were, you know, they were Jews, they weren't Germans. And uh, yeah, that idea has been really ingrained in me from the time I was a kid. Like, don't, like basically don't get too comfortable. You know, never be too comfortable. Always be aware 
of what we're fighting for. And, you know, that everyone, that you have to fight for everybody's right to be in this country and free right. and, you know, have, have the ability to, you know, to have the rights that they deserve. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And now thinking like, I can only imagine living in a pandemic, how much that heightens old trauma. Like, that's crazy. Wow. Like that. I am sorry that your family ever had to go through that. But I mean, you're carrying a legacy. You Like that. Wow. That's really powerful, Jonathan. And I asked um, Jahami when I interviewed her, um, shared a story about her family that was really powerful as well. And so, and I asked her this and I'm, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Um, when are you going to pin this story? Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because I, I was listening to her speak recently and just thinking, you know, what responsibility do I have to tell this story? How can I uniquely tell it? You know, is there a way to use TYA to convey my family's story and to keep, you know, to to convey it to, to kids now who might not know about that time and what we can learn from it now? So yeah, it's I definitely feel... Uh, a new sense of urgency to to figure out how to artistically, you know, write and share this story with more people. Yeah. Well, yeah. my 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 little uh, two cents that I've been giving everyone lately is I worked uh, this camp system, and a son, adult, told me once, um, asked me when I was going to write a book, and I like laughed. I was like, "That's funny. I'm never going to write a book." But he was just like, "No, no, no." He's like, "If you write a page a day for a year." you have 365 pages. That's a book. And so I said that to Jahami. I was like, Jahami, if you write a page a day. That's right. For a year, <laughs> you, have a, you have a solid <laughs> book. So that's just my advice. Just write a page a day. <laughs> for as long as you need to, I guess. That's really, that's just really powerful. That's a really powerful story, Jonathan. Thank you for sharing that um, and for being vulnerable to share that. Um, so knowing that, knowing that you've been, been impacted in that way, um, can you tell us about a theater moment in your life that you think change, uh, changed you or maybe showed you something different about yourself uh, that you were unaware of beforehand? It's a great question. I, it's funny. I, I, maybe it's because we're, you know, we're in a vulnerable conversation um, that a, a different example than I would normally give popped into my head. You know, I feel like normally I'd answer that question through the lens of career and, and TYA or production that kind of changed my outlook on the art form. But I'm, I'm going to say our Angels in America. Um, mm. I, I read it my freshman year of college. Um, and that reading that play, I, I, I took a course called political drama. It was an amazing freshman course. Um, and I would say like that play is what helped me come out. Uh, reading that play was definitely this sort of light bulb moment and a, a push for me to be to you know accept my identity and recognize um, who I who I am who I was um, yeah. in a big way and and that it was sort of reading that play out loud in that class that you know really helped give me that push nice. and that so that that play for me is is kind of a touchstone in so many ways I directed it in college. I've seen so many productions of it. I learn something new every time I see it. 
Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was really a breath of fresh air to go back and listen to this after five months of sitting on it. As you go into the world, remember to be kind, be light, and be loved, and be safe. Please wear your mask. Thank you again. Like and subscribe for future content and information. Be blessed. Bye, people.